Hey, welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. This fall, we are rejoining and concluding our series in the Gospel of Mark, where we're learning the way of Jesus together. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, everybody. You did well. I only saw a few of you sit down, so you did well. Uh, It is good to gather this morning. My friend Mike Sunley is going to read our scripture for us, and when he is done, we will respond with the words, thanks be to God. A reading from Mark chapter 15. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said but he cannot save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sakbatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled up a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in the tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, first things uh, first, I'm not Steve. You probably gathered that I'm a little bit taller than he is. He's a little shorter. 
so it's fairly obvious to you, but I did want to let you know that Steve was set to teach today, and then on Friday he tested positive for COVID, and uh, he has to quarantine now, and so he is bummed that he can't be here because he loved writing this message. And so he sent it to me yesterday afternoon. I was able to familiarize myself with it. So what you're going to hear today is largely the hard work of Steve and what he did during the week. And what I found myself saying, I I read over this again this morning, and as I read through what Jesus accomplished on the cross, I was just blown away again and again and again. I found myself saying, amen, God, amen. I can't believe you did that. And so we we tend to be uh, contemplative around here. We think deeply on things. Uh, We want to go deep in our faith. And this morning, I just want to give us all permission to be a little bit charismatic. That if you hear something that blows you away, it's fair to amen that. It is fair to say, God, thank you. I just think we're going to be blown away when we realize what Jesus accomplished for us. So did you hear a phrase that Mike read two times in his reading? It's almost there as an afterthought. It's probably not even the words that stood out to you. If I asked you what stood out to you in that reading, these words may not be the words, but they're some of the three most important words in the history of the world ever written. Those words are, they crucified him. They crucified him. Three words, but so much more. Why? Why are those words so important? If you're following on your notes, the cross of Christ is the central event in all of history. It's the central event in all of history. And today, we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark called The Way of Jesus. And those three words are what I want to focus on with you during our time together. You're welcome to open your Bibles. We're actually in Mark 15, beginning in verse 21, Mark 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can find Mark 15 on page 828 of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. But this is going to be a little different today. You can have your Bible open, and you can take some notes or circle some things. But instead of going verse by verse like we normally do, I felt led to take a big picture view and just focus on the three words, they crucified him, And what they mean. Why are they some of the most important words in history? Or to ask it differently, what happened at the cross when Jesus was crucified? What happened? We're going to look at nine different things that happened at the cross. There's way more than that, but we're going to look at nine. And then we will respond the only way we possibly can when we understand what Jesus did for us. So let's get right to it. Number one, at the cross, if you're following your notes, Jesus fulfilled the promise of Scripture. He fulfilled the promise of Scripture. The crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God, was not an accident in human history carried out just by human thought and actions. It was God's plan prophesied in Scripture from the very beginning. As Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers. 
As we say a lot around here, the Bible isn't a collection of disconnected books. It's one story with one point. It's found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall never perish, but have eternal life. The plot of the Bible is God's love for his people from the front cover to the end cover. And the cross is where that love was poured out and fulfilled. Everything in the Bible points to this event and what we're going to look at next week in the resurrection. For example, look at what God did when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter three, verse 21, three chapters into the Bible. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And then it would go on to talk about how the woman took a bite of the fruit, gave it to the man. They were cast out of the garden. And to save them from eternal separation, God killed an animal and clothed the man and the woman. He covered over their sin. Friends, in the story that we read today, we're going to see how God covers over our sin and many other prophecies that were fulfilled. You can look at the back of your notes at some time today. There's just eight prophecies listed there that were fulfilled in Scripture at the cross. If you're following on your notes, the cross was not an accident. It was always God's plan. It was always God's plan. Number two, at the cross, Jesus absorbed the judgment we deserved. If you're following your notes, he absorbed the judgment we deserved. In my opinion, this is what's happening when Jesus cries out the words, you heard Mike read them, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, We saw from the moment Adam and Eve sinned, human beings were under a curse. We were cast out from God's presence because God is holy and perfect. And we cannot live up to that perfection, though we try all the time. As Paul writes in Galatians 3, verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So just audience participation here, raise your hand if you have never, if you've never lied, never stolen, never hurt someone, never ignored someone in need, never lived a perfect life. Nobody? That's good. Then that confirms what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 that says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like, sin, is, sin is not something we like to talk about. Especially in our modern self-actualizing culture where like what's good for you is good for you and what's good for me is good for me. And if my sin doesn't affect anybody else, then it's not that big of a deal. Sin is a big deal. It's in essence turning our back on God and his ways. And we have all done that. And since God is just, he cannot simply just sweep those things under the rug. He can't ignore them. He must deal with them because he is good and he created this world good and it will be restored to its perfect condition. And some people might ask, well, like, why? Why can't God just forgive me? I mean, I'm mostly a good person. I've thought that. I'm mostly a good person. But let's, let's think about this, right? What would you feel if there was a crime committed against your family? You, you would feel moral outrage. 
Even an atheist would feel moral outrage because that is not just. And as human beings, we've been created in the image of God and we long for justice. Now, what should happen to a person who committed the crime against your family? Should it just be swept under the rug and allowed to keep happening? No. There needs to be justice and consequences. Now, multiply that by a million and look at a good God who created this world perfectly, and then he must watch his creation, including humans, be degraded, be destroyed, be robbed, be lied to, be abused, be victims of genocide and war. Would you expect the author of morality to be less moral than we are? I'd expect he'd be more moral. So what does he feel when we say something harsh to our spouse or our kids whom he loves? Or when a woman is objectified through pornography? Or when we look to money and things to satisfy us? Or we hold racist or sexist or classist views towards people created in his image? He would feel angry. God has emotions. And he would feel angry and he would have the right as a holy God to judge us. I deserve nothing less than that justice because I'm guilty and we are guilty. But because God is love, he's not content to show judgment no matter how holy he is. So what did he do? He comes to earth himself in the person of Jesus to absorb the judgment we deserve and bear our curse on the cross. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3, chapter 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus knew that was his purpose as well. As we saw earlier in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when we studied this, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I I know we are getting into some deep theology right now. Let's just pull up for a minute. This is usually called the atonement theory, and it's a word used to describe what happened on the cross. And I just want us to see that one of the things that happened, if you're following in your notes on the cross, Jesus satisfied God's judgment by becoming our substitute. He took our place in order to cover our sin. Just one more minute of some deep theology for you. This substitution process was part of the Old Testament law given to Moses. There was a sacrificial system where people were required to sacrifice animals, but the problem was the blood of animals could never fully cover over sin. As Hebrews chapter 10, verse four says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. It says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But seven verses later on the cross of Christ, we read this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. He's talking about the Old Testament law there. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus didn't just cover our sin for a time. He was the final sacrifice who covered our sin forever. The judge who demands justice stepped off his throne and took our guilt upon himself to set us free. And through the cross, we are declared not guilty. 
We are no longer guilty. The third thing that happened at the cross. If you're following, our sins were forgiven. Our sins were forgiven. Paul sums it up this way in Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verse 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. If we have faith that what Jesus did on the cross was for us, then God no longer holds our sins against us. They are forgiven. And as far as the East is from the West, they are gone. And I'm not just talking about past sins. Sins we have committed in the past where we've disobeyed God's word. I'm talking about past sins, present sins, and future sins. So if you have a guilty conscience and there's just this thought that I have sinned, I'm a sinner, and if I go out and get hit by a car after church today, then my salvation is in question. I just want to tell you, you can put that to rest because you're a forgiven person. You're forgiven. That's your identity. Now, this doesn't mean that you go and live however you want because that would show that we didn't really understand what, the co- what it cost Jesus on the cross. We're called to live our lives in a manner worthy of our forgiveness, but the motivation has changed of why we live that way. We are a forgiven people. Praise God. But this is not the end of the good news. Sadly, I think this is where many people stop, right? Where we're like, you're a sinner. God sent Jesus for your sin. And if you trust Jesus, you can be forgiven. And that's it. And while that's true, the gospel is so much more. And it is so much better. For example, number four at the cross, if you're following in your notes, Jesus exchanged our sin for his righteousness. Not only are we declared not guilty and forgiven, we are given an entirely new nature. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Would you read 2 Corinthians 5, 17 with me. On your notes, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. I can't emphasize this enough. Because too many Christians still live like they are condemned by God, and God looks at you, and he sees you as a dirty, rotten sinner who he just tolerates. Christian, that is not how God sees you. As a new creation, you are not a dirty, rotten sinner who God tolerates. You are now a saint who sometimes sins, right? You're a new creation in Christ. You have been given a completely new nature. Your heart has been changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And because we're new creations, number five at the cross, we no longer stand condemned. We no longer stand condemned. The great conclusion to the cross of Christ is found in Romans chapter eight, verse one. Would you read this on the screen with me? These are beautiful words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This may be 
A good verse for some of you to memorize who struggle with believing that God sees you as anything less than a new creation in Christ. To be in Christ means to be in relationship with him by faith and obedience. Faith in Christ unites us to Christ so that his death becomes our death and his perfection becomes our perfection. This is the great exchange. And it doesn't mean we won't still sin. We're going to sin every day this side of heaven. But our sin no longer condemns us. As we already learned, if we truly have faith in Christ, we stand forgiven. So the question you might be asking is, so what happens when we sin? It's a good question. And what I want to let you know today is that it doesn't change your standing with God. It affects your relationship and your fellowship with him, but it doesn't change your standing. I I want you to think about this picture. I want to put the picture of a smoothie on the screen. I know that's a rough transition from Jesus to a smoothie, but uh, we'll, we'll blame Steve for that. He likes smoothies. You can enjoy a smoothie and drink through a straw and everything is flowing great. And then something gets stuck in the straw and it blocks the flow. When we sin, our relationship and fellowship with God gets stuck. There's no longer a flow in our lives where we are walking in step with the Spirit. It doesn't change our standing, but it affects our fellowship and our relationship and our conversations. But if we're followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and convicts us of our sin And we can confess it and restore it, restore our fellowship with God. God has made a way for us to restore our fellowship and confession and repentance of our sin. And I feel like this needs to be said this morning because John tells us this in 1 John. And maybe somebody here needs to hear this. If you are living in an ongoing, unrepentant sin habit and you feel no conviction towards what you're doing, then you probably don't have true faith and you may not be a follower of Jesus. I I just pray this morning, if that is you, would you evaluate that in your life? Would you evaluate your heart? Would you evaluate that you may nominally say, I follow Jesus, I love Jesus, but I'm not living anything like it? Number six, because we're no longer condemned. It means that at the cross, if you're following your notes, Jesus fully restored our relationship with God. Jesus fully restored our relationship. In our story this morning, in Mark, what happened when Jesus breathed his last? The curtain of the temple that separated people from the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt. And it shows us there's nothing keeping us from God's love anymore. The price has been paid. We are given full access and full privilege as his children to his presence. Would you read this out loud with me in your notes? This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place, Because of the blood of Jesus. Many of you have seen this picture before. This is a picture of uh, John John playing under the resolute desk in the White House. Do you know who has permission to play under the resolute desk in the White House? 
a child of the president. That's who gets permission to do that. And as I was reading this this morning, I was reminded of a quote by Tim Keller that says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a cup of water is a child. We have that kind of access to the king. Friends, we don't have to beg God for his attention. He wants an ongoing, everyday relationship with us. That's why he went to the cross, so we could be with him. But this justice and this cross that we're talking about isn't just for individuals. The cross is bigger than that. And what this means, number seven, if you're following your notes, is that the cross, Jesus opened access to God for all people. You might know the story in Genesis of Abraham where God chose a specific person and he made a promise to Abraham that he would become a nation and be given a land. And we know this nation as Israel, God's chosen people. And the Old Testament is about their story. And God also made the promise that one day every nation would be blessed through him. And I want us to see that on the cross, Jesus completed the story of Israel. He completes the story of Israel and he fulfilled the promise that all nations would be blessed so that now even Gentiles, everyone who's not a Jew can now know God personally. Paul refers to this as the mystery of the gospel in Ephesians chapter three, verse six. You can see it on the screen. It says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promises of Christ Jesus. Paul, even Mark even talked about this in the story we read this morning. If you could see some of the historical context going on, who carried the cross of Christ? A man named Simon from Cyrene, which meant he was from Africa. Because Mark knows his name, it's almost certain he came to know Jesus as his savior. And then when Jesus breathes his last, who's the only person in the entire story to actually get it? a Roman centurion who declares surely this man is the son of God. The gospel is for everyone. And what this means, number eight on the cross, Jesus destroyed the barrier between groups. He destroyed a barrier. We need to know that the division that existed between groups of people in ancient times in the New Testament was as serious as the racial, ethnic, and national hostilities in our day. But according to Ephesians 2, Jesus died to create a whole new way for races to be reconciled. Jesus created a new family of God. And in this family, racism, sexism, classism, and any other ism we create to form an us versus them distinction was put to death on the cross. As Paul writes in Galatians chapter three, verses 26 to 28. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If only we lived like that was true. Friends, we have the great responsibility and the opportunity to model this new family of God to a watching world. And it will make a difference 
if we live out the way of Jesus. Finally, and maybe most importantly, at the cross, if you're following in your notes, Jesus defeated the devil and his powers. Jesus defeated the devil and his powers. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus told us why he came. We're given several mission statements of Jesus throughout the gospels. And this is one of them. Would you read this out loud with me on your notes? It says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John would say later, the same John that wrote the gospel wrote 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. And he said, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The Bible says that as a result of Adam and Eve giving into temptation and sinning, that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. This evil one goes by different names, the God of this world, the deceiver, the liar, the accuser, the Satan, the devil. And his main aim is to blind people to truth and keep them from the cross of, cross of Christ. But he is a defeated enemy for the follower of Jesus. As Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, I, I love this verse. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Yes, we still wrestle with Satan and the principalities and the powers of this world, but if you are in Christ, they are a defeated foe. We have the final victory. The end is coming when Jesus will return, not to take up a cross, but to take up his kingdom once and for all in victory. And friends, what we need to know about this, what this means for us is that we don't fight for victory. We live from a place of victory. If we are in Christ, the victory has been accomplished. And there's so many other things that have taken place at the cross that we don't have time to mention today. Next week, I will be talking about one of those that Jesus defeated our greatest enemy, death itself. But I'll say it again. Those three words, they crucified him, are some of the most important words and greatest words in history. So how do we respond to those words? When we know what Jesus accomplished on the cross and so much more, there's only one response, and it's how Paul responds in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Would you read it out loud with me on your notes? It says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If you're following on your notes, our only response is to come to the cross in humility. It's to come to the cross in humility. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is laying out a way for his followers to live, he begins with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Humility is the first step to faith. Humility says, apart from the cross, I am nothing and I have no hope. Humility comes to the cross on our knees and it says, I am a sinner in need of a savior. Humility comes to the cross and with trust receives the gift offered by Jesus. 
and you believe that it is by grace I've been saved through faith, not from anything I've done. It is a gift from God, not by works so that I can't boast about it. So that's what we're gonna do this morning because there's no other application than to come to the cross in humility, whether this is your first time or your thousandth time. We wanna come to the cross in gratitude and humility. Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like more info on our church, you can visit our website or find us on Facebook.